years. Um, he has three children. All, um, all three have been our missionaries currently and um, have been connected with our church as missionaries, and so that's exciting. Um, George and Joan are also missionaries at this point, so it's a family affair. Uh, if there's one thing you need to know about George, it is he loves the Bible and he loves to preach, which is really two things, but it's one thing for him. He just, it, the passion there and the, uh, just the depth of understanding and the depth of, of love that he has for God's word and uh, for sharing that is, is exciting. And, and he, uh, it, we're blessed to have that opportunity to have him share with us today. Uh, currently, he is um, working with the formerly called Reconciliation, Reconciliation Associates, is now being called Hope for the Hurting Home, uh, which is basically a training and discipleship ministry. Um, he works with a lot of. Um, different organizations and, and different opportunities, and God continues to open doors. Uh, currently, there he and his ministry are working with a partnership with the University of Minnesota and um, providing some, um, some counseling opportunities there, as well as um, creating some training with crisis marriage counselors and specifically working with some military opportunities, um, doing some training um, with that. Um, in the military, uh, marriages and just um, suicide rates and that kind of thing are, are really a huge, huge challenge and so um, he's doing some training and and connecting with that as well and so um, as the uh, choir highlighted um, it's a we have the opportunity to pray all the time and so as we um, welcome George I just want to pray specifically for our missionaries today um, both locally and nationally and internationally that they would be uh, feel God's blessing let's pray together Lord I thank you that you've called people to go and you've called us to go to our friends and neighbors and and um, support people that go across the country as well as in the area just to to tell others about you and so Lord I pray a special blessing on our missionaries this morning I pray that um, you would give them a special sense of your presence uh, and awareness of the depth of your love for them may you um, protect them Lord I pray that you would um, give them exciting opportunities as they face the challenges of working within other uh, systems or cultures and and just the opportunities that are there Lord I I pray for finances that continues to be a challenge for, for missionaries throughout the world and, and here at home. And I just pray that you would uh, continue to bless them and give them a, in abundance. And, Lord, I thank you for this, this morning, and I just pray that you will bless George as he shares with us. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be back again. I feel like I'm back uh, home. I, I want to express on behalf of Jonah myself our deep appreciation to you as a congregation for the ongoing support that you provide for our three kids. Uh, they wouldn't be on the mission field apart from the prayer support and the financial support of this congregation. So uh, thank you very much for that. Some of you uh, may know the name George Kenworthy because that's my name and that's my son. Uh, Mark and Kathy Wilson, that's another uh, daughter of ours. Mark is the international director of youth ministries for Cadence International. He's part of the reason we've had some doors open up to us in the military. And then uh, our youngest daughter, Michelle Weaver, Paula Michelle, uh, do an Internet outreach. They have 25,000 Muslims a month uh, that are coming to a website that Paul runs in Istanbul, Turkey. It's one of the most amazing things I know of in Internet outreach to, uh, to Muslims. So anyway, we appreciate your prayers 
uh, for them. They're the ones in the scariest place. They kill people in Turkey who are uh, Christians. So we appreciate your support for them. I'm here today because Pastor Kevin is in Mongolia. And he thought it would be fitting while he's in Mongolia with my son for me to be here talking about him in Mongolia. So I've got a couple of slides I want to show you about where Pastor Kevin worshiped today. This is the clinic uh, that uh, is the place where George and Terry spend a good deal of their time. Uh, they provide classes in English to Mongolians, uh, some leaders in the community and anybody else for that matter. They also do crafts uh, at the community center. Uh, and this morning is where they had their worship service, as they uh, have worship services and Bible studies and that sort of thing. You've heard about doctors and nurses. Some of you perhaps have actually gone uh, at the Amazing Gear outreach. And this would be a staging center uh, when they would go out into communities out in the hinterland and share the gospel as, uh, as they do that. Uh, the next slide is the family. Uh, this is uh, the pastor of the church. He actually is a medical doctor by profession. Uh, and then his, uh, his name is Segal. His wife's name is Aruna. Uh, she's finishing her Ph.D. and she's the head of the clinic. So this is the family uh, with whom George and Terry work the closest during the time that they are in Mongolia. They're going to be coming here this summer. So Mongolia is coming to Wayzata this summer. The whole family is going to be here. Uh, the reason for that is that Magna, the tall young man in the center, uh, is going to be enrolling uh, at Northwestern College here in town. Uh, Northwestern is providing a rather significant scholarship. The president of Northwestern, Dr. Al Curitan, is raising extra money. He's already done this for the four years that Magna is going to, to be here. And Magna will be the first Mongolian that I'm aware of and George is aware of uh, to ever receive an education like what you can get at Northwestern College. I mean, there are a lot, a lot of mission outposts in a variety of places in Africa and South America and throughout Europe. And there are Christian institutions all around. There are no Christian institutions in Mongolia. Uh, so Magna, as he comes here, well, he's at a free church, will be his home. He'll be interacting with some of you when uh, he's not with Joan and I on special occasions. You'll have the opportunity to uh, be with Magna because his family isn't going to be here. They're going back to Mongolia after this summer. But you get a chance to meet Magna and just want you to be aware of the fact this is not any old student coming to a Christian college. This is a young man who's going to get an education like no one has in northern Mongolia. And he's going back to impact the culture for Christ. So I'm excited about having Magna here and getting to know him even better. And I know you're going to enjoy the time with him as well. Well, as Mike said, I love to talk about the Bible. And uh, let's uh, get into that. How many of you know the name Pat Boone? If you look around, anybody who didn't raise their hand is young. Because, uh, um, you know, Pat Boone was, uh, was well known back in the 50s and 60s. For those of you young people who never heard of Pat Boone, uh, back in the days of Elvis Presley, he was the number two recording artist. He had 38 hit singles. Uh, he also starred in 12 motion pictures. Uh, the distinctive about Pat Boone, however, was that Pat Boone wore white shoes. Now, white shoes was a part of a trademark for him, but it also was reflective of his image. He was the man that was clean. He wouldn't drink. He wouldn't smoke. He wouldn't cuss. He had an opportunity to star alongside Marilyn Monroe. He refused that role because he didn't want to be associated with a sex goddess. In one of his uh, movies, a co-star was Shirley Jones, and the script called for him to kiss Shirley Jones. She was a married woman, and as a Christian, before God, he just didn't feel like he should do that. So he didn't. 
He was Mr. Clean. It shouldn't surprise us then that in 1950, when he eloped with his wife, Shirley, uh, down to Springfield, Tennessee to get married, uh, their first thing they did together as husband and wife was that he was a lay pastor in a church. They were involved in significant uh, ministry together. Uh, he was a giant in the church and outside the church for Jesus Christ. But then something happened. It wasn't anything that Pat Boone planned for. It happened slowly, imperceptibly, over a significant period of time. Until one day, he woke to the realization that if he even touched his wife, she became nauseous by the touch. This man that never drank, never smoked, never cussed, now was regularly gone to Las Vegas and blowing, in his wife's words, $2,500 at a time. This, this Mr. Clean man with the white shoes now was drinking heavily, and in Pat's opinion, his wife was nagging him about his drinking habits constantly. Which raises the question, how does somebody with a clean image, a man like Pat Boone with the white shoes, go from being the man that wants to live for Jesus to the man that his wife doesn't even want to be around? Now, the story I want to talk about uh, this morning is found in the Old Testament. It's a story about the most famous military man in Scripture. You know him by the name David. And you probably know at least the one story about David, that story recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 17, where Saul, who was the military leader, was afraid of this Philistine giant by the name of Goliath. All of, uh, of David's brothers were afraid of the Goliath giant. And according to the text, we find out that David was kind of a cadet junior grade. That's what the armor bearer was. It's kind of like a West Point candidate. But he was the one that wasn't afraid of the giant. So he came and with his sling, uh, he was able to kill the giant. And of course, after that, we can say, well, and he lived happily ever after. But today I want to tell you the rest of the story. It starts in chapter 18. Chapter 18 through 23 is one of the many short stories in the book of Samuel. And this is a story about how the man whom we know is the man after God's own heart, the man who was the giant slayer, went from what was the pinnacle of his life and career to the point where he finds himself in chapter 22 and verse 2 in the cave of Adullam, which literally means the cave of no glory, Surrounded by 400 people, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is discontented. He's surrounded by 400 losers. And we ask ourselves this question. How, How does a man after God's own heart, the man that we know is the hero of the Old Testament, descend down this spiral slide that ends him up in a cave of no glory surrounded by 400 losers? Well, the story begins in chapter 18. In verse 5, we find out everybody loves David in Israel. In chapter 18, verse 7, we find out that the ladies were singing their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And so we can say it doesn't get much better for David. He is coming off one of the most significant military victories in the entire scripture. And now they're singing songs about him. Everybody loves him. But as we read closely the text, we find out not quite everybody loves David because Saul is hearing these songs, too. 
And in verse 8 of the text, as he's hearing the songs, we find out that Saul finds that he is beginning to dread David. And then we get down to the middle latter part of the text. We find out that Saul now is trying to calculate how he can get rid of David. He promises his daughter's hand, Merab, in marriage, and then reneges on that promise, breaks the engagement. And then he thinks to himself, one good way to get rid of David would be to tell David, I will give you another daughter's hand in marriage, Michael, if in fact you go and you kill a hundred Philistines. And he's thinking all the while, if David attempts this, for sure he's going to get killed and I can be rid of my nemesis. Well, David accepts the challenge and he kills not only a hundred Philistines, he kills 200 Philistines. He comes back and he claims his bride. And you look at verse 28 of uh, chapter 18 and we find out that Saul's conclusion in all of this is that he was afraid of David and David became his enemy continually. So as David is going down his downward spiral, we find out the first thing he loses is his security. He's not even aware that he's in a bad place, but he clearly is in a bad place because Saul, his father-in-law, is out to kill him. There's already a sobering thought. David was able to conquer the Philistine giant, but he couldn't conquer the foe in his own family. And that hits uh, awfully close to home for many of us who can accomplish a great deal in our career, maybe can accomplish a great deal in life and ministry, but it's our home life uh, that defeats us. Well, that was where David uh, was able to ultimately fall apart because he couldn't control what was happening uh, with Saul. Now, we continue in the story and see that in addition to losing his security, David lost relationships. We already saw that his engagement to his uh, first bride, Merab, was broken by Saul, just more out of vengeance than anything else. Uh, and his relationship with his father-in-law, Saul, was deteriorating, and David himself wasn't aware of it. You would think when Saul throws a spear at your head, that might be a clue that maybe you don't have the best of relationship with your uh, father-in-law. And then when subsequently he throws a spear at Jonathan's head, when Jonathan's just trying to defend David, that might be another clue. And, of course, it was a clue. By that point, uh, when uh, Jonathan had the spear thrown at him, pretty good indication. Maybe Dad is not too happy uh, with, with David. But then also the relationship that David had with Jonathan uh, was sacrificed in the midst. Jonathan, David dreamed about how one day when David would be king, Jonathan would be his number one. But as we look at the text in Samuel, we find out as we skip ahead to chapter 31, that dream was never realized because in the battle in Gilboa, Saul and Jonathan were both killed. And that relationship with his best friend was lost forever. It's not surprising that in chapter 20, in verse 1 and 2, David then asked the question you and I have asked. What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? Why me? Why this? Why now? Tell me, what has been the error of my ways? And if we look at what's happened in chapters 18 and 19 to this point, and we ask, her, ask ourselves honestly that question, what has David done wrong? I think you'll probably conclude with me, nothing. Nothing. The truth of the matter is, we live in a sinful, fallen world. Sometimes there are foes in our families, and we can't help it. There's not a thing we could have done to prevent it. 
Uh, the enemy is in our home and uh, we can't deny it. And even though we wake up someday and we say, I don't get this. I don't get why the family is falling apart. I don't get why my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my son, my daughter, my wife, that they don't like me anymore. What did I do wrong? Well, I think for David, the answer is nothing I can see. But we live in a sinful, fallen world where stuff happens. An occasion we can find that life isn't as nice and as pleasant and as comfortable as it used to be. And we may, in fact, be on a slide that's going to take us to a worse place. Because as we continue in our story, we find out in chapter 21, David now is afraid he's running for his life. And he decides to go visit the high priest, Ahimelech. And as you look at chapter 21, uh, you find out that now, having lost security and having lost relationships, David loses his integrity. Because in three verses, he lies to the high priest. In verse 2, he tells the high priest, I'm on this secret mission from Saul. Lie. In verse 5, he says, I'm, I'm doing this holy thing. Lie. Uh, and in verse 8, he again insists that he's doing this special thing for Saul, and it's not true. So three times he lies to the high priest. You say, why does he lie? Well, he lies for the same reason every kid in every home chooses to lie. He's afraid. And if he tells the truth, he suspects that he could get in trouble. So he lies. And there's always consequences to lying, not the least of which is uh, lying breaches trust in uh, relationships. But in his case, uh, there were some more significant consequences because in the story we find out uh, that there was an enemy of David there and a friend of Saul, a Edomite by the name of Doeg. He listened to all of this. And then when David left, he immediately went to Saul and told Saul what happened. Saul's infuriated. And we find out later in the story that Saul then has Ahimelech come to him and he kills Ahimelech and 85 priests. All because David has lost his integrity. And then in the very next scene, we see that David loses his dignity. Because after he is, escapes uh, with Goliath's sword and the showbread that he has garnered from uh, Ahimelech, uh, we find out that he decides to go to Gath. Now, we need to check our Old Testament history here for a moment and say, now, Gath. Gath would be one of those five Philistine city-states that made up the empire of Philistia. Uh, and more significantly for Samuel, Gath was the hometown of the giant Goliath. Now, I look at this and think, what was David thinking? For 40 days, the giant Goliath came out and taunted Israel. And Saul was afraid. And David's brothers was afraid. Everybody was afraid. But this young pipsqueak, you know, junior guard, David, and he comes out and he kills the Philistine giant. And, and you think, now, David, don't you think they might have you on their most wanted posters, you know, in Gath, you know, in a public enemy number one, you know, this is the Osama bin Laden for, uh, for, for Gath. I mean, don't you think they might recognize you if you came to town? And David basically is saying, no, I don't think so. And I wonder, what are you thinking, David? Of course they're going to recognize you. But David does what some of the rest of us do. When we're on a slide and we're running from God, we actually convince ourselves we're going to be more comfortable in enemy territory than with God's people. Uh, we, we can be with people who are pagans 
and feel more at home, more at ease than we ever would be with the people of God. And so David goes to the one place that it would shock us that a follower of God in the Old Testament would want to visit. And of course, when he's there, immediately they recognize him. Oh, you're you're the guy. You're the guy that killed our giant. And uh, the uh, king then immediately wants to kill David. So David, in this setting, uh, decides his only hope is to pretend to be a madman. So he's acting all crazy and he allows spit to come out of his mouth and get into his his beard. And and then, uh, you know, the king, Achish, decides they got plenty of madmen already. I'm thinking, you know, he's speaking for all politicians here in America. We have enough madmen here already. We don't need another madman. Just get this loony bin out of here. And then we see in the very next scene in chapter 22 of Samuel, David ends up in the cave, literally, of no glory. And there are 400 losers there. According to the text, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is discontent are in this cave. And that's where David is. And you say, how did he get there? How did this hero of the Old Testament descend to the point where now he's in the cave of no glory, surrounded by 400 losers? It seems like a ridiculous question until we ask ourselves, why do some Christians who are in financial difficulty go on spending binges to feel better? Or why does the spouse who fears that he or she is about to lose their mate nag and scream at their partner in a feeble attempt to get them to love them? Or why does the businessman whose career is threatened begin to drink heavily to feel better, only to become more depressed? The fact is, when we hit rock bottom, it seems we can't help ourselves. Even as strong believers, we can wake up one day and look at ourselves in the mirror and see spit on our beard and say, what did I do to get to this place? Now, you can comfort yourself if you've been in a cave. I've been in a cave to know that the great hero of the Old Testament found himself amazingly on a downward spiral that brought him to the point where he was in the place he never would have wanted to be. But he was there nonetheless. And it begs this more important question. When those of us who love God, those of us who want to say about ourselves, I want to be a man or a woman who is a woman after God's own heart or a man after God's own heart, when we find that's not true of us, and when we're in a cave of losers, how do you get out of the cave? That's the real story here. And as we look at uh, what happens in the story following verse 2 of, of chapter 22, we get uh, the conclusion to the story, what David did to get out of the cave. It's already inherent in verse 2. Uh, we're told that as he was surrounded by 400 people, everybody that was in debt and discontented uh, and in distress, it says that David became the captain of them all. You say, what does that mean? Uh, it's a truth in life. There are five kinds of people that are part of our lives. There are mentor, teacher people that inspire us. And if you're around the right kind of mentor, you get fired up. They fuel your passion. And then the people with whom we can share energy and ministry, and you're around those people, you get fired up. 
And then if you have the privilege of teaching young people or teaching anybody and they're excited about your teaching, they get fired up and that fires you up. But alas, there's two other people in every one of our lives and they make up the bulk of the people around us. Uh, the one category is the very nice people. They're the people that fill churches. And when you find uh, with these very nice people, they see somebody on fire for God, uh, a David who's got a lion's heart, who's going to kill giants for God. They say, good for you, David. But the minute David is on his downward spiral, those very nice people are likely to say, well, too bad for David. He used to be on fire for God. I don't know what happened to him. Um, you know, I guess that happens sometime. You know, I know somebody else that used to be on fire. They're not on fire anymore. And the truth of the matter is those very nice people don't do one single thing for us when we lost our passion for God. They may even gossip about us. Oh, you know, you know, over there, David used to be such a cool guy and I don't know what happened. And then that fuels people becoming even more critical of us. And then the fifth category of, of people are the very draining people. These are the people who we can call are everyone who's in debt, everyone who's in distress, everyone who's discontented. That'd be the very draining people. You spend 10 minutes with them. They suck the very emotional lifeblood right out of you. And you think after being with them, you want to take a nap or go on vacation. And we ask ourselves, who's in this cave? Well, it would be 400 very draining people. And now David's their captain. What's that mean? Well, thankfully, I don't have to guess as to what it means because the Bible tells me what it means. There are 73 psalms that in the psalm title are attributed to David. Thirteen of these psalms, the psalm title tells us exactly where David was, exactly what he was doing when he wrote the psalm. In nine of these 13, we find out that the historical incident when David wrote these psalms is in our story. When he was in Gath, when he was in the cave, there are two psalms that he writes. Uh, psalm 57, Psalm 40, 142. He writes these psalms while he's in this cave of no glory. So part of what we can say is happening here uh, is that uh, David, in many ways, was like his counterpart in the New Testament, the man named Paul. You remember, Paul found himself in a Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16. And the Philippian jailer was taking uh, Paul for granted till he heard Paul and Silas singing praise songs in jail. And then there was an earthquake and the jailer thought for sure uh, Saul is going to make a beeline out of here. And I'm a dead man because I've lost my prisoners. And then he walks to the, the jail cell and there's Paul and Silas praising God. They haven't gone anywhere. And what happens in that story is the jailer is so amazed by what he sees about the demeanor and disposition of Paul and Silas that he wants what they have. And Paul's in a position to lead the jailer and his whole household to faith in Jesus Christ. So David, as he is in this very cave, he's writing songs and singing songs. I want you to see a couple of these. Turn in the book of Psalms. We'll start with Psalm 56. So this is one of the uh, the nine. By the way, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, the psalm titles are verse one. So uh, this uh, in, in Hebrew, you don't have a psalm title. It's the first verse. And then what we have in our Bible is verse one is actually verse two in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, these uh, psalm titles are every bit as inspired as what we see that follows. So notice in verse uh, or, or chapter 56 of Psalms, 
Uh, for the choir director, according to Jonath Elim Rakim, uh, Miktam, which is a psalm that teaches of David, when the Philistines seized him in gas. So this is in our story. Uh, he's at the point where he loses his dignity, spit is in his beard and whatever. This is what he writes. Be gracious, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I'm afraid, and he's afraid during this period, I'll put my trust in thee, in God whose word I praise. I, in, in God I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? You see what he's doing? Now, he wasn't afraid when he faced Goliath. He's afraid of Saul. And he's acknowledging his fear and he's telling himself, I know what I have to do with this fear. I've got to put my faith and trust in the God who can save me. I've got to get my mind off these losers around me and that song that they are singing. Woe is me. And I've got to focus my attention on the God who alone can save me. That's what he's doing in the cave. Now, uh, t- turn over to the very next uh, psalm. This is a psalm, that, as you see, that he writes in the cave, Psalm 57. For the choir director uh, said till El-Tasheth, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. As I mentioned, this one in Psalm 142 are the two that he writes actually while he's in this cave. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee, and in the shadow of thy wings I take refuge until destruction passes. I'll cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. You see, David in the Old Testament is doing what we've been told to do as New Testament Christians. When you find yourself in the cave of no glory with spit on your beard and you're wondering what in the world did I do to get here? What you should be doing is singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Get your mind and your heart off the enemy. Get your mind and your heart off all these things that have brought you to the cave. Focus your mind and attention on the God who saves you. And that's the first step out of the cave. Some of you know the name Beth Moore, a well-known Bible teacher. And off this principle, she has said to women... Uh, when, when you find yourself dis- depressed and discouraged, sing. I don't care if you don't feel like singing. You sing because it is part of the armor that God has given you to defeat the enemy. So you sing whether you feel like it or not. Now, we can decide to praise God or we can decide to focus on how miserable our life is. David decides to praise God. That's his first step out of the cave. Now, the second step for him was admitting his faults in chapter 22 And verses 20 through 23, we find out that he gets the bad word about what happened uh, to the family of Ahimelech. Ahimelech is dead. Eighty-five priests are dead. And now Abiathar, who is uh, from the family of the high priest, comes to David. He tells David all this. And David admits to Abiathar, that's what I was afraid of. You think, you know, to admit that now, that you thought something could go bad for the priests, you know, maybe it would have been a good idea to think that back when you did what you're doing. But, of course, when you're on the slide, you don't think about those things. But what David does here is that he admits it's my fault. I'm the one responsible for these 85 deaths. And Abiathar, I promise you, I will take care of you. I'm going to make restitution. I will make this right. Now, that's rather significant to me 
Uh, Because when we are on these downward spirals, we're more likely to keep asking the question of uh, 1 Samuel uh, 20, verse 1. What did I do wrong? This isn't fair. This isn't right. I shouldn't be here. And the more we keep asking that question, we're more likely to do what David does next, where he loses his integrity, he loses his dignity. You keep focusing on the why me, why now, why this. Uh, it's going to lead you right smack into the middle of the cave. In fact, uh, Pat Boone wrote a song entitled a new a song, a book, rather entitled uh, a new song. And he uh, indicates that for him, this was the means out of his cave. He was ready to do an NBC program, doing the taping for it. And as he was in the car driving to the taping, he heard himself praying, and this is what he puts in his book. Father, I've really drifted away, haven't I? Is there a way back? I made an awful lot of mistakes. I know, but I do want to serve you again. I'm sorry for all the things I've done and said. I'm sorry that I've frittered away the inheritance that you've given me. I pray that you'll bless this show today, and if you do, and use it, and me, in your will, and most of all, that you'll draw me closer to you. I need you, Father. I need you. One of the lies from the pit that we as Christians need to stand against is that lie that invariably Satan's going to whisper in your ear and say, how can you dare call yourself a Christian? Here you are in this cave of no glory with spit on your beard and you did it to yourself. God's not going to listen to you when you pray. God doesn't love you anymore. I mean, look at your life. The enemy is going to whisper that in our ear and he's going to tell you, you can't read the Bible anymore. You can't pray anymore. You're just this big old hypocrite. God isn't interested in you. Now be assured that's Satan talking. That's not God. Because for David, when he was in the worst spot of his life, to this point in his life at least, uh, what got him out of the circumstance was not feeling sorry for himself or saying, I I better throw away all my Bible books, I better stop praying. Uh, It was exactly the opposite. He started writing praise songs to God and focusing his attention on who God is. And he started confessing his sins and recognizing he needed a God who was gracious to him. Now, this is all part of a short story. It's interesting what we see in the next part of the story, because in chapter 23, uh, now there are some folks at a little village called Keilah uh, that come to David and say, can you rescue us? David prays, ask God, what should I do? And God speaks to David and says, David, I want you to go rescue this city. So David goes to his men, talk to God. He said that we should go rescue uh, the city of Keilah. And according to the text, David's men are afraid, which is a predominant theme throughout uh, Samuel, say we can't do that. We're afraid. So David goes back and he prays the same prayer he just prayed. Lord, what should I do? God gives him the same identical answer he just gave him. David, I told you what you should do. He doesn't say it this way. Uh, What you should do, David, is go and defend the city of Keilah. Now, what's so encouraging to me about that is that David, as he's making his way out of the cave, trying to figure out what he needs to do, uh, he wants what God wants for his life. But he has a hard time figuring out what that is. God tells him, and he goes away, and he comes back, and God has to tell him again, uh, and, he, and he goes away. And we can look at this and say, well, what's the lesson here? There may be occasions for us in our journey back to a relationship with God where we desperately want to know what God wants to do and can't figure it out all that easily. And what you do then, according to this, is you ask, and you ask, and you ask, and if God keeps giving you the same message, know that at least here God doesn't rebuke David for asking. 
It seems that God is understanding that uh, David may be having some difficulty figuring out exactly what God wants to do, even though God makes it plain for David. So you ask and you ask and you ask, you know that God wants you to know his will even more than you do. And if that's really what you want, he's going to show that to you. And then the final step uh, for David comes as we look at what happens in the latter part of chapter 23. Saul's still trying to kill David. That's the predominant theme throughout. And now, according to the text, Saul and his soldiers have David surrounded. David's in deep trouble, and David knows he's in deep trouble. Now, the text just mentioned this, and if you don't read carefully, you might miss the implication of this. But Saul gets word that the Philistines have invaded Israel. Instead of capturing his enemy, David, Saul now has to leave to go defend the country. David understood the significance of what just happened, because in verse 28 of chapter 23, David calls the place the rock of escape. Because he knows it wasn't just some sort of like or a lucky circumstance that just occurred. God was on David's side when David couldn't protect himself. God provided a rock of escape for him. Now, it's kind of the theme of one of the psalms that he writes during this period. Uh, Psalm 18 is a psalm that David writes during this historical period. One of the things interesting about Psalm 18 is that it is repeated in verbatim in 2 Samuel 22. Same identical words. Uh, So you can put Psalm 18, Psalm, or 1 Samuel 22 side by side. Same identical thing. When God records something twice in Scripture, we might say that may be significant. And if you look at Psalm 18 or 1 Samuel 22, you find out that what that psalm is saying, it's, you know, during this period when David was in the wilderness running uh, from Saul, and he is telling himself, God is my rock. God is my refuge. God is the only one that ultimately is going to save me. Now, what we tend to tell ourselves uh, when we have made a mess, and maybe even the people around us tell us this, you created the mess, you need to fix it. I have another lot of husbands and wives that tell that to their spouse if their marriage is in trouble. You made this mess. You fix it. That's not a great strategy. A better strategy is to say, I know somebody who's the rock, somebody who's the refuge. You try to pull yourself up on your own bootstraps, you might end up in even a deeper mess than you're in right now. You've got to believe that there's a God who is our rock, who is our refuge, who is our resource when we are in serious trouble. So David sings that. And God records that twice for us so we don't miss the point. Uh, As Pastor Mike said, we've had the privilege of being, I think, the only faith-based partner in the country uh, that is involved in a relationship with a secular university. Uh, That really came out of this church. Judge Debbie Hedlund from Wyzetta Free Church uh, gave about 60 copies of our first book out in the Hennepin County Family Court. And then her boss, Judge Peterson, found out about this, asked to meet with me, and then ended up meeting with uh, Dr. Bill Doherty, who is the leading authority, I think by all counts, in the state of Minnesota, a secular uh, authority in the state on marriage and family issues. He's got a national reputation, nationally known for uh, what he's done. And he asked to meet with me, read the book, and we've had this partnership now for the uh, last several years. He asked me to put together a think tank of leading evangelicals in the Twin Cities, and we've been meeting now for several months trying to develop high-impact practices uh, for the church to save marriages. We all know the church hasn't done a particularly good job in saving marriages, and so maybe there's something we're getting wrong. So we're together trying to figure out what do we need to do to be more effective uh, in helping uh, people who are in trouble. It was uh, our next-to-last session 
Dr. Doherty met with his uh, group of collected uh, leaders and he said, I want to make one thing clear. The reason I'm involved in this partnership is not because I think that as a secular authority, I need to teach you what to do. I'm involved in this partnership. And this is now a direct quote from the leading secular authority in our state. He said, I'm in this partnership because you have the juice. And because you have the juice, I expect that you're going to be more effective in seeing marriages saved than any of us in the secular community. Not cool. And I look at that and I say, well, that's the way it should be, isn't it? God declares himself as the great I am of the Old Testament. That's what the word Lord means. Jesus in the New Testament says, I am the I am. And by declaring that, Jesus wants us to know that he desires to be powerfully present in our lives. And so we can say, whether we're in the cave of no glory, surrounded by 400 losers or not, if we have Christ in our life, we got the juice. And we then just need to determine that as we find those, ourselves in those spots where we don't want to be, that we do what David did. Decide that singing is my weapon against the enemy. I'm going to sing whether I feel like it or not. And I'm going to confess that I am a sinner and I desperately need a God who is gracious to me. And I'm going to trust that the only way out of this is not to figure things out myself by my own strategy or through my own efforts. I need to know God's will. If I've got to ask him and ask him, I'm going to keep asking to know for sure what God wants me to do. And then I need to be convinced that ultimately my salvation, the salvation of my family does not rest in me. It rests in the one that I call the rock, my refuge, the Savior who's got the juice. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father. We thank you for the relevancy of your book, the Bible. Thank you for the many ways in which we can see how it applies to our lives. God, I can't imagine I'm the only one that has found myself in the cave of a with spit on my beard. I'm sure there are others here who can identify with this story uh, in Samuel. If we can't, we sure know people who have been there. God, we pray that we'll take encouragement from this lesson, uh, that we may be ones who are not just the nice people or the draining people, but we can help those in the cave to look to you. And then, Father, when we're there ourselves, may we be convinced that we can always sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In his name we pray. Amen.